Bet the Fountain of Youth and Southwest Stakes this weekend with a $200 sign-up bonus from Naira Bets. Simply sign up for Naira Bets with promo code REWIND200, that's R-E-W-I-N-D-2-0-0, and earn your $200 sign-up bonus just in time to bet your favorite derby preps from anywhere. Start playing today at NairaBets.com or download the Naira Bets app. And also, put your handicapping skills to the ultimate test and register for the Gotham Challenge on Saturday, March 6th, the first major online contest from Naira in 2021. This contest features a $3,000 buy including $2,000 of live bankroll and $1,000 for the prize pool. The Gotham Challenge includes a cash prize pool, two NAC seats, and a $3,000 Naira contest seat. Registration closes Friday on March 5th. Visit naira.com slash challenge for more details and register today. Welcome to episode 80 of Redboard Rewind. My name is Spencer Lugmiel, and today my special guest is none other than Golden Gates track announcer Matt Dinnerman. Me and Matt are also part of the Daily Gallup contest, which Golden Gate was the track for the week. We go over four races from Golden Gate's Saturday of Races. Those were races four, six, seven, and eight. And some angles we talked about were why figuring out which favorite you have in each race is so important. Are they a solid, vulnerable, or false favorite? And why second time sprinting or routing is often overlooked compared to second time on a new surface? This is Redboard Rewind. Now I'd like to welcome in my special guest for this week's Redboard Rewind. He is the Golden Gate track announcer, Matt Dinnerman. Matt, how are you today? I'm good, buddy. How are you doing? I'm good. After a wonderful weekend of racing at Golden Gate, which actually got added due to uh, some cancellations, it was the track for the Daily Gallup Handicapping Contest. How are you doing so far in that? To be honest, I'm doing sort of subpar. I need to pick up the pace a little bit. I'm, <laughs> I think one in four but there have been a few games where i've been within five dollars of winning so maybe a win or two on the other end uh i would have probably been doing okay so but it's been a lot of fun it's my first time doing it and it's a good challenge and it's a real challenge because i don't follow a ton of other racetracks around Mm -hmm. the country so you don't really know the circuits like some other people might so it's a good challenge it's our fourth season now i've originally it was me and real dynasty picks idea of kind of doing you know, a March Madness type tournament every year. And then we kind of rotate it just into this whole season type thing. And I think it's good. It brings out the top handicappers. We have guys like Ed DeRosa, Dan Torchman, you know, it's kind of like our celebrity, a couple guys from TVG. And I just think everyone is so worried sometimes about just making money. It's them against the world. Now it's kind of in the head to head contest. I just, I think it definitely adds a little bit more because you can miss a race and still be tied at zero dollars. Right. Right. And, and the, I like how you guys do it, too, which is just the two dollar win bet. And, uh, you know, you know, it, it basically gives you an opportunity to show your handicapping skills from a much more simple level. You know, and I, I think it's uh, it, it's a lot of fun because you got to do every race. And I think that's a good thing, too, because you're showing off your handicapping abilities, not just through, you know, 
high quality races, maiden races, allowance races, stakes races, but you're also showing off your ability to understand the claiming game too, and different levels and anywhere from grade one races to $5,000 claimers. So it really get, gives you a chance to show what you've got as a handicapper. I think that too, I, a lot of people are like, oh, we should just be doing the stake races for the best cards leading up to the Derby. And I'm like, I'm not that good at stake races. I'm much more of a maiden claiming type guy. <laughs> and just doing the stakes, it's like, okay, but everyone else will be covering that. And I think, you know, when someone hits that $8 horse in that, you know, claiming race, everyone wants to know, well, how did you find that horse? And it could become a learning experience for everybody. Absolutely. And when you look at the different types of tracks, too, you've got anywhere from Gulfstream Park, which is the highest quality winter racing there is really, in my opinion, anyway, you've got Santa Anita. Then you've got places like Oaklawn that is pretty much a longer version of a boutique meet. And then like this week, we had Golden Gate where there were plenty of claiming races, but there were a couple of all other really solid uh, levels here at Golden Gate Allowance, Maiden Special Weight. You had one that day, too. So um, different surfaces, different tracks. It makes for an interesting handicapping puzzle every week. Before we get into those Golden Gate races, let's kind of get your background on racing. Obviously, being a racetrack announcer, not you also do some handicapping. I love the periscoping stuff you used to do on the side, going over a racers, looking at the track in general. What kind of got you started in racing? Well, I'm from San Diego, California, and when I was about 11 years old, my dad took me to Del Mar Racetrack for the first time. We live in Carmel Valley, which is a little town right next to Del Mar, and I fell in love with the racetrack. My dad, he's a big fan of racing. He's not in the business, but I fell in love with the sport. I fell in love with the horses. I fell in love with the live racing aspect, the excitement of the horses coming down the stretch. And as I got older, I really fell in love with handicapping horse races and explaining horse horse racing and trying to come up with a winner and um, the, just the whole aspect of looking at the form and trying to put every race, which is a puzzle, putting it together and as I went more and more, I just got more and more interested in it. And they say that once you get bitten by the racing bug, it doesn't really go away. And so far, that's the case for me. Once I was in, I was all in on it. A lot of people who start off handicapping, you know, they want to be, you know, the next Andy Serling or somebody on TVG or, you know, maybe the Gulfstream crew. You obviously took the different approach and are now a racetrack announcer. What kind of gave you the edge of going one way or the other? Well, originally, I did sort of lean towards I want to be an analyst on television. Um, but at the same time, when I was really young, I was always asking my dad questions. How does the announcer know all the names so quickly? How does he know the lengths between horses? And I think it was always in there for me that I wanted to do that. But it did take a little while for me to finally figure out this is what I wanted to do. And about in high school, I decided that I wanted to just start practicing because I wanted a job at the racetrack because I really love the live racing part of it. I love being at the track. Um, there's nothing like it, in my opinion. And I wanted a job if I were to get a job in racing to be on site at the track. And I think that being an announcer a, it's a lot of fun because there's an art form to it. And I really fell in love with being able to learn that art form and come up with my own style. And every race, you're trying to describe it as a story. And I just sort of fell in love with that, being able to actually do the art form of race calling. But at the same time, I also knew that announcers, they were good ambassadors for the sport. And that's something that I really wanted to do. I wanted to be a type of person that was willing to talk to all different people 
um, all different sorts of people and try to teach them the game and, and try to help improve the game. So there are a lot of different aspects when it comes to announcing and there are different types of announcers. Some announcers just go to the race track, call the races and go home and others are a little more involved in that. Um, and I enjoy being involved. How many races do you think you've called so far in your career? I would say probably a few thousand, probably. I haven't counted, but probably three to 4,000 at least, which is a lot. And I'm only 28. So I I hope I, I know Trevor Demon told me one time he's called over a hundred thousand races. So (laughs) that would be pretty amazing if I can get that far. That's a long ways off. I would say a few thousand. I'm 30. And it's interesting because a lot of times growing up when I went to the OTB with my father, when he was bartending and I would just, everyone would be handicapping, you know, Naira, and then they go home. I would have the racing form, and I'd bring it home with me, and I'd start handicapping that day from Laurel, and just uh, Pete calls it handicapping by by book, and just you know going back and looking at the results. So I've always felt that you know people who just handicap one track for the day, but then don't go back and kind of look at the other tracks. Obviously, I wasn't playing any money on because the races were already over with, but just learning all those extra reps, and it's just trying to get better and better. And I I would love to put a number on it right now. I couldn't even begin to think how many races I've handicapped being. You know, just at the younger age, but I just I always find it funny that a lot of people, you know, they just do the track for the day. They're either positive or negative and they just move on to the next day. There's no really recapping of it or, you know, they just kind of move on. I like this concept, too, because after the races, I enjoy looking at the just the, the, the paper or whatever I'm using to handicap the races and say, OK, what did I miss here? If I mm-hmm. missed something, if I got it right, I'm obviously very happy. Um, but um you, you know, I think that it really helps you grow as a handicapper when you're able to identify the reasons or the the angles as to why horses have run the way they have. Um, and I think it overall just makes you a better handicapper. And you're going to learn a lot that way. And that's one of the things I preach to people that are learning how to handicap when they first get into horse racing, especially early on is after a race, take a couple minutes to look at the form and see if you missed anything. I think too, like there's a bunch of shortcuts. I remember a lot of people growing up trying to teach me would always be like, I don't like this favorite. I'd be like, okay, so they play against and one of their horses will win, but that favorite might still run a really solid second, only missing by like half a length. And I'd be like, well, didn't that favorite still run well? And they're like, yeah, 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 but we, we won the race. And, for me, it always comes down to, like, I start with the favorite in the racing form. I don't start from the one post or from the outside post. I always start with the favorite in every race and try to figure out, is he vulnerable? Is it a solid favorite? Or, you know, is it just a completely false favorite, like one horse that maybe has won five times on the turf and now is obviously switching to the synthetic and has never raced on that surf before and is under two to one. It just those types of horses to me, I always find so funny, even also at Saratoga, the, you know, the wet track days when they switch them off the turf and the turf horses are still on as the favorites. And one thing that's really interesting about handicapping, and like you mentioned, which is one angle that you use, essentially how you handicap is let's identify the favorite and can we beat this favorite? And that's something my father taught me as well, my dad. Um, But it's interesting that you point that out because when you think about it, there are so many different ways people handicap and it's a game of opinions, right? Mm -hmm. So every, you, you might see a certain performance or see something in the comment line or see something in the form totally different than someone else would see that exact same angle. Um, So there are probably a lot of different ways that people can identify how they pick winners. And I think we'll probably go over that in this podcast for this episode a little bit, but it's interesting you brought that up because 
uh, I, I sort of just go through the field first before identifying a favorite. And then once I ident- identify that favorite, then I'll start to, to go back to what I need to do to try to figure out who's going to win the race. Let's go back to when you first started practicing to be the race race caller. How, what was the hardest thing you found when you first started out? And what's, you know, one thing that you still think you struggle with a little bit? Those are really good questions. So the first thing, when you're getting into calling horse races, I would say the vast majority, if not every single person that starts, I wouldn't say is totally copycat, but you're, you're mimicking other people that you've heard. And in my situation, it was uh, Trevor Denman and Vic Stoffer because at the time, um, I was just calling California racing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just following California racing, excuse me. So I was watching Vic Stoffer, listening to him at Hollywood Park, and I was listening to Trevor Denman when he was at Santa Anita and Del Mar. And I sort of, I wasn't imitating them, but I was sort of calling like them. And I listened to other people around the country. And, and once I was able to try to establish my own style, which took a long, long time, but sort of mixing up a way to call the races, taking a little bit from this person, taking a little bit from that person that I enjoyed and making it into my own style. At that point, when I actually started practicing calling races in the press box at Del Mar, because that was when the real serious work started, I would practice off the TV a little bit on the computer, on the Cal Race replays with small fields. Mm-hmm. Um, but then once I got to the track and had binoculars, that's when you really start to learn, OK, this is how you actually call a race in a live scenario. I was just trying to be accurate. I mean, that was the most important thing was making sure that I memorized all the horses, that I got their names right down throughout the race and also making sure that in the race I was giving correct info. I didn't want to be saying a horse was loaded when they didn't have any run or a horse was under pressure when they weren't even being asked yet. You know, all these things are really important. So accuracy really was the most important part of announcing for me when I first started out and was practicing that. And it still is. And I would say that one thing that I need to work on a lot more and a lot of announcers do have this problem is, uh, the speed that I talk because sometimes I go a little bit too fast. And I think that when I'm not going too fast, um, not only do I sound smooth when I'm at a good tempo, but also it gives my brain that extra little bit of time to process things correctly. And if you're going too fast, sometimes your brain's going a little bit too fast and that could hurt the quality of your call a little bit, both in accuracy and the way you sound to the viewer. I feel it's kind of the same thing with being a podcast host. Pete always described it as you're kind of like juggling, you know, six, seven things at once, and you have to kind of keep the tempo up, make sure you're asking the right questions, not cutting anyone off, making sure even if you have – obviously I do a lot of one-on-one conversation, but if I ever have two, three guests on to make sure everyone's getting equal time as well to give out their thoughts and interests as well. Right, and absolutely. And, uh, you know, just going back to what we're saying about just how everybody's sort of different in the way they approach things, and that's what makes it so interesting to chat about. Obviously, you having been at Golden Gate for a couple of years now, what is the biggest difference between the synthetic racing compared to dirt from your perspective? I think synthetic racing is a lot more tactical. Um, it, I guess it depends on what type of dirt surface you're talking about, depending on what track, I should mm-hmm. say, you're talking about. I mean, a, a place like Santa Anita, you can make an early move. You can be a little more aggressive early or early on when you're making a move in the middle of the race and probably get away with it. 
here on synthetics, it plays a lot more like turf, really. I mean, you have to be patient. You have to time rides right. And really, the good riders will separate themselves from the average riders here because the good ones are able to time right. They're able to uh, execute the correct tactics to win a race. And there was a time when I first got to Golden Gate that everything was coming from off the pace. And my first year and second year is calling the Tapita when I actually got the job as the racetrack announcer, because the first year I was just on the feed as the paddock host. Mm -hmm. uh, I noticed that it got a lot more fair. Now things can change on the synthetics. We do typically see little biases here and there, and maybe within a half a race card, something might change. It's not usually that quick, but it could be day to day. So those are things you got to sort of pay attention to. But at the end of the day, I think uh, it's a lot more tactical and with, synthetics any racetrack but especially with the synthetics i've found that the pace isn't necessarily as important as a dirt track and sometimes the best horse doesn't always win it's the horse that gets the best trip or the right ride and i like that too because i think it's very difficult obviously when we had switched to golden gate i said okay synthetic i usually don't do that well at woodbine it's going to be a new challenge for me but going now kind of back into your race calling if you could end up going to any track after Golden Gate, uh, or you could be at Golden Gate for the rest of your life. What track would you want to go to? And if you could call a race that wasn't a Triple Crown race or a Breeders' Cup race, what race would that be? Well, I'll tell you this. I just feel really lucky and blessed to be here at Golden Gate Fields. And I'm always a person that believes, you know, um, you have to be happy for what you're doing now. And I am 100% happy with what I'm doing now. My goal was always to call races in California one day, and I've already achieved that goal and I'm really happy about it. So um, I've had a lot of help from a lot of people and I've had a lot of support and I wouldn't be at the place I'm at here. Such a great track like Golden Gate without the help and support of so many people. So I'm just happy to be here. And if an opportunity pops up and it presents itself, we'll go from there. But for now, I'm just really happy to be at Golden Gate at a track that I think is really in the long term going to be going in the right direction. And I do have a lot of uh, really positive thoughts about California racing because I think that we are going to go in the right direction. It might take a little bit of time. We've had some hiccups, but I think we can definitely head back in the direction we're seeking to go. Um, and in terms of calling races, um, I, I would say that the one race I would really want to call is the Pacific classic other than a triple crown of breeders cup race. Like you mentioned, just because um, the Pacific classic was the first big race I was exposed to as a kid. It's at my home track Del Mar that I went to when I was young and um, enjoyed watching some really, really good horses in that race. Um, and probably a notable also would be the Travers just because I think the Travers is a really great race. It's rich, full of history uh, with the best, of the best three-year-olds. It's almost like a second Kentucky Derby in a way. Couldn't agree with you more there. I love all those answers. Let's go ahead and jump into our races then, going over four races from Saturday's Golden Gate Car. We're going to start off with race number four. It was a 5,000 clamor for four-year-olds and up, which I've not won a race since September, or November 1st, or I've never won four races going one mile on the synthetic. What would you like in here, Matt? So in race number four... I went with Speed Saver, and the reason I went with Speed Saver was because, and this is one advantage that I had as maybe most people with the Daily Gallop contest didn't have. They, I know the circuit. I know all these mm -hmm. horses. I can sort of say, well, this horse is comparable to that horse, and this horse is beating better horses than that horse, or losing to them in this case. And I like Speed Saver because even though he doesn't win all that often – 
he was running second in his last two starts behind Conquest Lemon Raid, who would have won this race by open lengths if he was in for a $5,000 tag. I mean, he must be, at this point, eight, nine lengths better than these horses. So I looked and said, okay, if Speed Saver is five to two on the morning line, we can get that. That's good enough. In a small field, he is a closer and there wasn't that much pace, but he's a horse also who really you look at him and he's got a little bit of a kick down the lane in a sense. And sometimes even with slow paces, if they really pack up, it could work both ways. Sometimes the lone speed horse gets a clear lead and just takes him all the way. And there are other situations, especially on this synthetic surface, because like I said, it plays more to like turf to where sometimes the horse with the best kick, if they pack up and a closer is only three lengths off a really slow pace, as opposed to when they're usually seven or eight, Sometimes that horse has an advantage from the back because they're just able to outkick everybody. So I took my chances with Speed Saver. Unfortunately, he ran just a very subpar race and he didn't win. So I was absolutely wrong about that, Spencer. For me, I was kind of stuck between the two outside horses, Rodeo and Incredible Luck. And I'm just looking back and forth. I think Rodeo, you can just absolutely toss the last race, shipping down south to Santa Anita. Runs against open tens, just gets absolutely destroyed. Comes but right back to a level that he had run a solid race. Two back, even though it was somewhat of a setup on a, a slow pace early. Just looked for this one to absolutely come come right back. Kyle Frey, one of the top jockeys out there that I remember from even first starting out, just super solid rider. And then you look at incredible luck, and I just thought that the last three races were all kind of you know. They were all competitive. The low sal race you kind of have to take with a grain of salt because some horses like it there, some don't. But the last two at Golden Gate were fine, a win and a third. And obviously at uh, in that race where he'd run third against Conquest Lemonade, had run against Speed Saver. And just looking at it in a small five-horse field like this, it all came down to price for me. And I honestly thought Incredible Luck would get less action than he did. Obviously, he ended up going off favor against Rodeo. And if I had a chance to, you know, go back and if we weren't doing the pick and price style, I absolutely would have taken a horse like Rodeo getting better odds. And I was looking at Rodeo and I was thinking to myself, well, this horse is better on synthetics, but he's also won three times on dirt. So it's not like he can't be competitive on dirt. Um, he was in for 10,000 and that was a little bit of a bump up in class. But the fact he lost by so much last time out about 40 lengths, I mean, he was eased. It was a real concern for me. And I was wrong obviously because Rodeo ended up winning this race I don't know what happened last time out but obviously it's a total toss out and he came right back and he won nicely um, and got a good trip and Kyle gave him a good ride to put him in the right spot incredible luck I was sort of with you on that though I thought he was a little bit of a vulnerable type of favorite if he was going to be favored a very consistent horse uh, but he burned a lot of money he's gotten perfect trips and just hasn't been able to win and last time out he finished uh, behind my top pick speed saver and i figured he'd get bet because his trainer isidro tamayo is a good trainer evan ramon's one of the top riders here right now and people do bet human connections i mean that makes a difference i think in the wagering so i thought incredible luck was a pretty vulnerable type of horse in this race um and i went between speed saver and rodeo and ultimately wrongly decided to go with speed saver uh, i always wonder it's kind of like that march madness thing where you see they play pop up two teams, but the names are crossed out and you're like, who would you pick here? The team that's on the bubble that won't make it or the team that, you know, everyone just seems to want to have in. And I wonder if they sure. did that with human connections. If we didn't see Chad on Chad's name with a couple turf horses, would they get bet so heavily? Javier over at Naira, you know, 
Umberto Raspoli on the turf at Santanita, uh, Flavian Pratt, etc. How much the numbers drop? And I'd be curious to see if someone did a study on just the top name riders and how much the horses' odds drop before races. Well, if we were to do a study, I would imagine that top riders' horses, not always, but can at times get over bet. Um, and the reason is pretty simple. I mean, when you're a top rider, you're in demand, right? So if you're a guy like Flavian Pratt down south, even Kyle Frey up here, um, you're going to have the demand and people are going to want you to ride their horses. And typically when you see a jockey like that on a horse in a race, that horse is immediately live. And at the very least, you have to take a second look. And these types of riders, they're not going to want to ride a horse that has no chance in a race, um, usually 95 to 99% of the time, unless there's another reason. Um, maybe they want to ride a horse because they want to do a favor for the trainer. They know the horse can't win this race, but they got a few stakes horses in the barn. So there are little things like that we wouldn't know. But generally, you're going to be looking at the that the jockey that win the most and same thing with the trainers i mean if you're trying to decide between a chad brown favorite or a trainer that's 12 percent and and is pretty average and and has better dirt horses than turf horses you're probably going to side with the chad brown horse for matt it was a speed saver for me it was incredible luck let's listen to matt's wonderful call of rodeo winning the fourth here at golden gate right now and uh we're off Rodeo blasts out of post position number five and goes to the front from Incredible Luck in Southeast Asia. Speed Savers back in the fourth spot early, and Moonlight Blue joins him at the back of the pack as the quintet hits the clubhouse turn. Incredible Luck conceding the lead to Rodeo as a narrow advantage here. Southeast Asia inside holds the inside spot, and on the outside, there goes Moonlight Blue, though. Catalina Martinez puts to the pedal to the metal. He says, we're going too slow here. I'm going to pick up the pace, and that's exactly what Moonlight Blue does. Takes a hold of the bit and spurts three lengths clear. Rodeo in the second spot. Incredible luck right outside of him and a gap of three to speed saver with Southeast Asia. So they're down the backside here. Moonlight Blue. They couldn't have gone any slower, really, for that first quarter mile, and they've certainly picked up the pace a little bit in the second uh, quarter mile here, but Moonlight Blue maintains the lead. It's two-length advantage here. Incredible luck in the second spot. Rodeo broke from the outside. He's on the fence now, running in third, and three lengths back to Speed Saver. Broke from the rail post position. He's outside of Southeast Asia as they hit the far turn run. Moonlight Blue with three furlongs to go, the one to catch. Two lengths clear of Rodeo, and incredible luck. He's under a hard ride now on the outside. Rodeo striding into second. Speed Saver in fourth under some pressure with Southeast Asia at the back. Quarter mile to go. Moonlight Blue, 15 to 1. The run to run down here. Rodeo in the second spot. Incredible luck gives way. Speed Saver still at the back of the field. Doesn't look like it's his day today. Down the stretch. Rodeo tries to put away Moonlight Blue and does so successfully. And Rodeo goes for the finish. Moonlight Blue back in second. Incredible luck is third. Then Speed Saver Rodeo at 8 to 5 will win very easily. And then number five, Rodeo gets it done paying what I seem to be a solid 540 with a 70 buyer. After that terrible race last time out where you said it had been eased, it's almost like you. I, I've heard people talk about the angle of uh, betting an eased horse next time out because everyone thinks there might be something wrong with the horse, and this one went on to win. Even though it was a short price, I think it was a overlay as a second choice. I think probably so. And the, and the morning line indicated seven to five, like this horse is going to get bet pretty good. And he ended up not getting bet really compared to the morning line. Anyway, I thought he would be lower than what he went off at, but the key is this horse really likes synthetics. You know, we know that he could still run well on dirt. 
Um, and I think that last race did concern some people. It concerned me. I can tell you that. I mean, I didn't make him my top pick because he lost by so much on a surface that he has run okay on. And usually when you lose by 40 lengths, it's not because of the surface. It's usually something else. So uh, Rodeo, though, he likes synthetics. He was back in a pretty realistic spot. I mean, he won for 5,000 two starts ago easily after dueling on the lead. And he defeated incredible luck that day, too, by two lengths. Um, and the same exact thing sort of happened here. Rodeo sort of went on with it. Incredible luck just couldn't keep up with him. I think, too, uh, this was such a weird race for me because I, I have the note that the three made was, was kind of like a weird move to the lead after the first quarter. And I feel like that's kind of what got that horse second. They ended up just, you know, finishing. It was uh, what they finished was first, second, third, fourth, and fifth at the quarter. That's how they finished it going across the finish line. And that's kind of what happens in these short fields. When the shorter the field is, I kind of feel like it definitely helps the speed horses out a little bit more. 100%. And the first quarter mile was just sluggish. It was like 26 <laughs> and change or something like that, which actually um, is, is, I wouldn't say it's, common but i would say if there's absolutely no pace in a race especially with lower level claimers here on tapita at golden gate where the times aren't typically fast compared to dirt tracks anyway that is not the first time i've seen a 26 opening mm -hmm. quarter or 25 and four whatever it was and catalino martinez was aboard moonlight blue pretty pretty aggressive rider as it is i mean he's good on speed horses and he's good at getting horses to stretch their speed and he sort of just said you know, I'm not going to mess around anymore. I'm not just going to dawdle along here. I'll just put this horse on the lead and see what we can do here. But in small fields, if there's no pace and the leader gets a clear lead, especially if they open up like Moonlight Blue did two or three lengths as opposed to three quarters of a length where a good horse is right on your tail, then you've, you've got a shot because you've got a head start there. And, you know, I when I watch the move, sometimes you see early moves and you say, uh-oh, this isn't going to work or this is going to be mm. tough to sustain because they went so slow early it seemed to me like that was a smart decision to just get aggressive and take it to him. And especially with a horse like him, who isn't the best horse in the race, try to get a head start on these better horses. You know, these horses are better than you. Catalino knows those three top horses we talked about are all better just in terms of faster and better horse than um, your horse. So take it to him. And like I said, and we talked about sometimes the best horse doesn't always win, but the best trip does. And, yeah, I don't blame him for trying that, but like you said, I think it helped him secure that second position. And I think, too, for a lot of people who may have bet this horse handicappers around the country, maybe they're mad. They're like, oh, that, that move ruined his chances of winning the whole race, and, you know, he ran second. I lost my win bet. I mean, when you're playing horses that are 15 to 1, I'm not telling people how to wager, but you're not expected to hit every 15 to 1 shot. Usually, even for me, if it's above 10 to 1, I'm usually playing across the board or even just a solid win place bet because – I'm seeing something that other people aren't. There's still a very, very good chance that racing luck or something happening in the race might, you know, mess up my horse's chances to begin with. Right. Absolutely. I would agree 100% with that. Let's move on to our next race. Race number six from Golden Gate Fields. It was a 12,000 to 10,000. Not worse two lifetime going one mile on the synth. Uh, buyer par for this race is a 63. For people who know me from the other, from older podcasts, I uh, take six points off that to kind of create my contender list. I really like the horse in this race, that being the number one, breaking the code. Six to one morning line just had been, had the one race off the break, solid third at 21 to one. I love horses that can 
uh, overachieve is what I call him, the overachiever. At 21 to 1, he probably was definitely not a top three pick, and he ran third anyway. And I could definitely see this horse improving next time out. What would you like in this race, Matt? Well, I was with you that I wanted to try to beat the favorite Eddie's sister, mm-hmm. who I thought was an extremely vulnerable favorite at six to five on the morning line. I didn't really like her that much at all. I ended up going with Silly Notion, and she actually, just like my pick in that last race we talked about, did not perform very well at all. Silly Notion actually ran terrible, (laughs) to be quite honest. But I liked her because she was coming into this race second start off a break. And before that small little freshening, she was routing, and she broke her maiden routing first out. I mean, she'd never sprinted before until her most recent start. On January 30th, she sat off the pace and came with a nice little rally down the lane and galloped out really well at this level. And I watched that race and said to myself, I think trainer Bob Hess Jr. was just giving her an out. She's going to get back to routing next time and probably be ready to roll. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened after watching that race on January 30th. Here we are a few weeks later, and she's in a route race at this level. So I said, perfect. This is a perfect spot for her. Um, and that was sort of my reasoning there. I thought there was a decent amount of pace for her to run into. I knew Zagra would be quick out of the blocks, number four. And Eddie's sister, number six, she was removing blinkers. So I figured, well, um, she's probably going to try to relax removing those blinkers, but she's pretty quick and usually pretty aggressive as it is. So I'd imagine at the very least, if she's not on the lead today, she's going to be pressing Zagra and she's not going to be far off and they're going to be moving right along. And that's exactly what happened. Unfortunately, I just did not pick the right off the pace horse. Um, and you did. But I spread in my late pick four and pick six and used breaking the code on there. So for that, I was happy. I think, though, too, this is a perfect example of what we would call people would say it's a vulnerable favor. It's probably a false favor. Hey, sister, if yeah. she's good enough to win just based off of a class drop and switching surfaces, then a lot of these horses probably aren't good enough to win at this level anyway. The fact that the main win came on the turf and just she she wasn't even like a decided horse on the synthetic surface either. So now you have a horse that is dropping not only from an allowance, not even to like the mid-level claimer, but like almost to like a bottom level claiming position of 12,000 non-warrants at your life. I just thought they were kind of, it wasn't a fire sale, but I just thought they wouldn't want anything to do with this horse. If they get the win, they get the win. Hopefully maybe they get the, the claim sale as well. Uh, silly notion to me was interesting uh, with the first synthetic start. I just didn't know if she was going to be good enough. I won the 16,000 maiden claimer on the turf. It was at Tampa, and it was under Rudolph Brissett, who I think, when you look at trainers, maybe is a, a more renowned name. But the fact that she was one for one with him and then is, you know, only one third and seven tries with two other trainers kind of made me a little bit nervous. Yeah, and I think with Eddie's sister, I mean, you look like you said, her only career win came on the turf. Um and she won for a main special weight condition. So it wasn't like she won for a tag either. I mean, mm-hmm. and she didn't beat the strongest maiden field. And that's, again, what comes into play here for me that I have an advantage is I can look at a race and know the horses and be able to indicate, is that a strong race for the level? Is it a weak race? Who'd she beat? Blah, blah, blah. Um, and I thought it was a pretty subpar main special weight. That said, even when you break your main from main special weight condition, three starts later, if you're in for 12-5, I would say that's only a negative sign. And in her next two starts against winners, she tried turf again, first start against winners, and she went to the lead and just couldn't keep up. 
And then most recently, she tried the synthetics and ran off early on, was able to slow down, and then eventually just stopped badly from the 5.16s pull on. And I said, even though if she relaxes and has a little more energy left in the tank, her speed figures are going downhill. She's in for 12.5 now. Her form looks like it's going in the wrong direction, and I'm going to try to beat. And I think with breaking the code, she had run once going three turns, going a mile and a 16th, and she was coming out of the turf shoot that day. Um, but she was pretty far out of it early, not something we usually see from her. Um, and she just didn't really fire on the grass that day. And second time routing, you figure maybe if she gets the right setup, she can improve for a good trainer in Greg James. And that's what happened. For Matt, it was a silly notion. For me, it was breaking the code. Let's listen to breaking the codes win right now. And uh, we're off. Uneventful dispatch from the gate for all the runners in the race. Silly Notion eased off a lineup as they came out of the gate, though, and she's at the back of the pack after that. Eddie's sister and Zagra, the quickest of the pack here. And on the outside, Eddie's sister with Zagra inside. Holds the rail spot, wants to be on the pace. She's got it now. So Zagra is the pacemaker, a length and a quarter on top of Eddie's sister on the tail of the leader. She'll sit off in second now. A gap of two to breaking the coach. Really fabulous in the fourth position. Silly Notion makes her way into fifth. And Foggy Bottom broke very alertly today, but she drops back to trail onto the backside, and she's ten lengths off the lead with five furlongs to go. Zagra at a decent clip, leads the way a length and a half. Eddie's sister removing blinkers, rating kindly today under jockey Evan Roman, and it looks like she's going nice and easy at the moment. A gap of two lengths to breaking the code. Silly Notion claims fourth, truly fabulous, back to fifth on the outside. Four lengths off the lead, and three lengths back to Foggy Bottom. Sixth and last as they hit the far turn run. Zagra still a half length on top of Eddie's sister, a lot closer now in second. A length and a half to breaking the code. Truly fabulous being sent along three deep is trying to make a move towards the lead with five sixteenths to go three wide. Silly Notion has dropped right out of it, passed by Foggy Bottom. Silly Notion calls it an afternoon. Still five runners in with a shot as they come off the turn. Make it four as Zagra gives way, and Eddie's sister goes for the finish. Breaking the code, taking second. Truly fabulous, struggling a bit. Foggy Bottom on the grandstand side, trying to pick off rivals. Breaking the codes up to challenge Eddie's sister, and breaking the code hits the lead at 8-1 to one and starts to shake free. And second, Eddie's sister, Foggy Bottom, trying to get up into that second spot she does, but breaking the code has cracked the code today in race six and wins it by a length and a half. Foggy Bottom second, Eddie's sister third, truly fabulous, finish fourth. And number one, breaking the code, gets it done, paying a really good 19-20 with a 63 buyer, a little bit more of improvement, and this was kind of the, the breakout horse for me in the contest. I think I ended up with $64 on the day, and this was 30 whole dollars of it right here in one race. Yeah, and uh, pr pretty interesting race, isn't it? Wouldn't you say so? I, I think just coming around the turn, you, you just, it was so close. And I'm just looking at breaking the code, and I can see that they're not really being able to keep her head straight. And I'm like, if they can just get her straightened out, she's just going to explode here down the lane. Yeah, I felt so too. I mean, calling the race turning for home, I was looking at her and at the 316th, I said, if she can just start a level off here, she's going to be tough. And it's interesting because Persuasive Lips, who she lost to last time out sprinting, actually came back to win. I forgot to note that. So um, I think that was a positive for you. But I, I think things did sort of set up for her. Um, and sh she was one of these mares that sort of needed the right setup to win. And mm -hmm. I think she got it. 
But I think that this route thing for her, going around of ground, I thought she looked better routing than she ever had before, even sprinting. So maybe this is just a mare that with age and with time, she's going to improve a little bit. I thought it was a pretty good effort, all things considered. And I think that, too, when you look at a race like this and you're trying to figure out, you know, I don't think people give enough credence to everyone's so excited about that first-time turf or second-time turf horse, but they don't really look at, you know, it could be second-time sprinting, second-time routing, and they just, you know, they don't give it that same type of extra look in. And like you had said, now it's, you know, the second route. It's her first time routing on synthetic, and just what can we see here? I think everyone will say, oh, Eddie's sister was just a terrible favorite. And I think probably ran to what the connections thought. Didn't really do much else. The buyer was to 59 and got beat by two horses, including a long shot and foggy bottom who we didn't even get to really talk about in the pre in the pre prattle. Exactly. I mean, she couldn't even hold on for second and Jonathan Wong, he trains, he's obviously our leading trainer here. Um, that's something you also have to take into consideration looking at a trainer like that and saying, okay, Jonathan, everybody knows he wins at a good percentage. And one of those reasons is because he's very aggressive when it comes to spotting his horses, he puts them in spots where they can win and uh, this is why handicapping is so fun because they're just looking at these races. There are just so many different factors you have to uh, figure out and say to yourself, is this why this is happening? Is this why that's happening? Did this horse get a bad trip last time? If he did, could he, could he have won? Some people might say yes. Some people might say, no, I don't think so. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of people probably when you don't know who you want in a race like this, uh, you lean towards a guy like Jonathan Wong who wins at a high percentage. And I think that horse probably part of the reason why he did, she did get that pretty good. I will say this too, for uh, foggy bottom, I think Bill McLean going out and getting uh, Fry as the jockey was a big upgrade. And I think I just needed to see that big buyer increase. Obviously a 42 off made win was not going to be good enough in this race and to see it jump all the way up to a 60. I think next time out, this is a horse that, you know, you might get eight to five, two to one, five to two, somewhere in there. And as long as she's facing another Eddie sister and maybe not someone as good as breaking the code, uh, this could be a really nice horse next time out. And foggy bottom really overperformed in this race. I mean, that last race was a, even though it was a maiden five race, look, there's no world beaters at the maiden five condition, but it still was a pretty slowly run race anyway um they were staggering home in the final furlong and again she probably got a good enough pace to chase and that helped her cause against winners here i think she probably ran the best race of her life honestly i know she didn't win but she ran really well and really improved so um you know with a horse like that too i like to note that when you have a long shot that overperforms the next time they come back, there's always that suspicion. You just say to yourself, can they duplicate that? Is this a horse that I can trust to run another good race like that? The fact that Kyle hopped the board was a positive. And um, I would imagine that next time out based on this race here, um, which is by the way, a pretty decent group for the level. Mm -hmm. I would imagine she probably will get play next time. I think going forward, Foggy Bottom, maybe the light bulb has turned on for that horse. Race number seven is her next race going over. Maiden special weight, five and a half furlongs on the synth. Not much for me in here. Just a really easy maiden angle for me on the outside. Hot, rageous. 70 buyer last time out for Jack Steiner. Second uh, at eight to one in the debut. Broke slowly and still swung five wide with a rally. Just one that I thought could even show more today. 
I figured so too. And that's one of my favorite angles. There is maiden second time starter. Um, I love the angle. It's interesting though, because I think sometimes it can work, work both ways. Sometimes you see a horse second time out, they improve other times you see a horse second time out and they regress for whatever Mm -hmm. reason. And it can work both ways. I looked at this Philly and I watched her first race and just calling the race. I was very impressed with the way she ran on down the lane. She didn't break all that well, like you said. Uh, and jockey Billy Anton Georgie was aboard that day. He was aboard for this race too. After the bad break, he just said, okay, no problem. We're just going to sort of settle towards the back here and make a run. And she made a real eye catching run. She didn't win the race, but the winner, maybe I will is a really nice Philly from the Brendan Galvin barn. They've been very high on her and she won very easily. And I'm sure we're going to see her in a cowbred stake down the line. She's a really, really nice Philly. I think she's California bred. And even if she's not California bred, I think we'll see her in a stake. She's a nice Philly, but hot rages was running on like a nice Philly herself. And second time out, off that first race, she was actually privately purchased by Eclipse Thoroughbreds, Gary Barber, and Watchdale Stable. And usually they send horses to Peter Miller when they buy horses from up here. They're a partnership group that typically will buy California bred horses up here for maiden races. But they opted to leave her with Jack Steiner, which I thought was interesting. Um, and this time around, we saw her break really well and exactly the opposite of what she did the first time, which is just go to the lead and just steal this thing. And that's exactly what she did. Um, and I'm calling the race in the beginning. I was a little bit concerned because you say, well, is she going to be able to stick around? She's never shown like speed like this before. And sure enough, she won easily. But this is a nice filly and she was drawn outside. You figured she'd get a good trip. She did. She was the best filly and she breaks the main pretty handsomely. For me, it was hot rages. I'm guessing it was the same for you, Matt, in this race. Say that once more. It was hot rages for you as well in this race. Yeah, I picked hot rages. I just love that main second time starter angle. And I figured even if she regresses a little bit, she'll still probably win. And she ran really well. And I just figured she'd get a good trip drawn outside. I figured she was the fastest filly in the race. And the way she ran last time indicated to me that probably wasn't a fluke. You know, if she can run like that against a really nice filly and uh, close really well like she did, she's probably got some natural ability here. It's a consensus pick here in Red Board Rewind. Let's listen to the race right now. And uh, Laroff, Mischief Free, broke well, isn't quick enough to get to the front. Hot Rages has some speed from the far outside. Fast to Fortune away in second with her. Exquisite Legacy taken back to third with New Ways to Dream. A gap of two to lots of bling and three runners at the back. Amazing Grays in Life in Paradise. And Mischief Free, who broke alertly, is at the back of the pack now, running seven lengths off the leader. Hot Rages at four to five, leads the way in lifetime start number two. Clears off, gets over to the rail, and enters the turn a length on top. New Ways to Dream in the second spot. Fast to Fortune back in third under a little pressure now. Exquisite Legacy off the rail. Five lengths off the pace as they start to string out. Amazing Grayson is asked to go three deep. Lots of bling is dropping back. Life in Paradise could not keep up, nor could Mischief Free as they come off the turn. It's still Hot Rages, the one to catch. Leads by two lengths now from New Ways to Dream and Hot Rages sneaks away. Hot Rages, three on top. Four lengths ahead with a furlong to go. Fast to Fortune up into second, passing New Ways to Dream. Exquisite Legacy coming on with Amazing Grayson, but Hot Rages impressive in lifetime start number two, and she's won it by five lengths easily. And our consensus pick, Hot Rages, does get the job done. Pays only 360 with a 68 buyer. Actually didn't improve at all. Went down a couple buyer points, but even though it's a consensus pick at a short odds, you still got to get across the wire first. 
That's right. And we've seen a lot crazier things happen than an even money morning line chance regress after a huge effort, right? So um, I actually singled this Philly in one of my tickets that I gave out on air and another ticket I spread using a couple more runners because I said, well, if she does regress, then we're hopefully going to have a couple others on there. And one of them that I had was Exquisite Legacy, who was uh, the second place runner. And she was 12 to one on the morning line with Kyle Frey, a first time starter, a Philly that had some decent works on the page including a couple of bullets so i stuck her on there and she ran pretty well and i'd imagine if she runs back to that or even takes a step forward in lifetime start number two she probably won't be a maiden much longer i think too just looking at uh chuck dybel's you know closer looks here in the form debut runner for unraced dam both of whose first two falls are winners with one earning six-figure bankroll that just there alone for me is one where i can say okay even if you're not going to put her on top you could still at least you know try to play her underneath because the horse is going to run somewhat well if the siblings are also running well and getting 12 to one, you know, that's how you turn the four to five shot that you love when you can, you know, pick three or four for the underneath and the exact and you turn, you know, 360 and the, you know, $11. Exactly. And that's what you have to do if you want to play, uh, you know, exotic wagers is if you find a horse that's, you're not going to get much value on their four to five, even money, whatever they are, a favorite, um, and you think they're going to win pretty easily, then just hammer underneath in exotics. And, you know, I know people that play tries and supers and they just go one horse, two horse and go all, all or one horse, two horse, and then all. And sometimes a 20 to one shot will clunk up there for third or fourth. And that's how you get the value. It's so hard for me with playing the all button. I feel like if when you do that, you kind of take the handicapping aspect out and you're pretty much just, you know, playing roulette or playing the lottery at that point. Yeah, and I think people have different opinions on the all button. And and really, formulating your tickets is just in, as important as actually good handicapping and coming up with live horses versus vulnerable favorites or bad favorites. I think here at Golden Gate, I do want to note, I've started to learn over time that there are certain races, for example, you might get a five or six horse field here at times. And um, sometimes you look and you're in a tricky spot because you say, okay, for example, uh, you get a big favorite that you think is a bad favorite and think very much has a big chance to not win. But you look and you see the, every other horse in the race is pretty evenly matched and they all have a really good opportunity. So do you press the all button? Do you take a couple out? Um, and those are things that I've had to really try to figure out over time playing Golden Gate Fields. And I've come to learn that sometimes pressing the all button isn't a bad thing if you think it's a wide open race and you think there's a horse in there that's pretty vulnerable as a favorite, but then there are also races where, you know, our board will say three to one, seven to two, seven to two, nine to two, five to one, six to one. And you're saying, well, they all can win. Mm -hmm. So you might, instead of going four or five or five or six or even six or seven, might as well just use them all. Let's jump into our last race, race number eight from Golden Gate Field. It was an optional 62 and 2X going 101 16 miles on the synthetic. It's kind of nice how you said you mixed up the card a little bit. You got those low-level claimers, a couple of maiden races, and now you got the big optional 62, which I'm guessing is the highest you probably probably go at Golden Gate other than a stake. What did you like in here, Matt? Yeah, I mean, these are some of our better horses running two turns here. I ended up going with Kono from Southern California for trainer Michael McCarthy. Second start off a layoff, first start off the break, this horse ran off against Calbred Stakes Company and just had no shot to win that day at a big price. So I use that as a toss-out type of race. Um, he'd been working really well, some really sharp workouts leading up to this race. 
And he's run here at Golden Gate for trainer Michael McCarthy, who, by the way, has really, really good numbers every year when he sends horses up here. He always brings up horses that run really well up here. And this horse is two for three here at Golden Gate. Now, he did win both of his starts up here against just first-level allowance foes. So he was in a second level today. So it was tougher. But you knew he liked the track. I thought there was a decent amount of pace, um, and I figured he could stock and sit just off the speed and maybe get the jump on the closers. Um, and unfortunately, what happened in the race was he actually broke, I think, last. I don't think he broke well at all. Mm-hmm. Um, the chart says he broke second to last. I think he broke last. Um, and then he, he was really aggressive, and, and the rider tried to get him to relax, and he didn't want to, and he sort of dragged his rider to the lead. And by the 316s, he sort of lost steam there he had used up too much energy in the early part of the race and sort of faded to third or fourth but i just figured he'd get a good trip he likes the track you know and he comes from a good barn down south in a pretty wide open race i was wrong this time um but i didn't love the trip either so that was sort of uh you know my pick why and then my reactions to the race itself Uh, for me it was the horse in the rail r silver oak something that uh I just noticed now and didn't notice before was that this was the only horse that wasn't in for a tag. And when Jonathan Wong goes with uh, the rider Orozco, I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, 20 Orozco. Yep. Orozco, 24 starts, 33% wins, positive ROI. They're really trying to, uh, to get this horse to run well. And obviously last time out was the favorite ended up getting split by two others in this race, King of speed and line bird. And just, I, I think that, if you look overall, had won a couple races back at Los Alamitos, and they tried the turf, still ran fine, losing by less than losing by three lengths, and then a really close miss here for second. I was just really excited for this one. Two to one was probably a little bit short on the line for me. I think I might have wanted maybe five to two a little bit higher, but I definitely wanted nothing to do with the winner out of that race, King of Speed. I don't like it when horses win at a level and then don't really jump up. Maybe there wasn't any stake racing around, but they come right back in for 62. I wasn't a positive for me. Well, it was certainly the right spot for him to be in, in the second level allowance condition. The reason I didn't pick him on top um, was this is a horse that at times he's a little bit quirky to ride. He's a little difficult to ride. And Irving's a good jockey for him because Irving times rides really well. He's really patient. He's got a lot of finesse and our silver Oak is a horse that will hang down the lane. He isn't always great at running by horses. Mm -hmm. He sort of has that pack animal mentality, not that he can't win, um, but he's a horse. You will never see him win by any more than a length. He will be right there at the finish with everybody else. And you have to time the ride, right? And I was just concerned that he might get out game down the lane a little bit because last time out, that's what happened with King of speed. He had every chance to run by him and couldn't. But you looked at this race and you also said to yourself, well, it did look like on paper the pace would be much faster than what he had to run into last time out because he's a horse that usually sits off and makes a run and he didn't really get a fast pace to chase. So I thought the pace scenario was going to work in his favor. And I thought Irving really gave him a good ride on Saturday. I thought that his ride really made the difference between a win and a second or third place finish because he timed it perfect. Um, he needed to use every bit of energy to encourage this horse to get to the wire first, but he did. He's always been a good horse. He's always had a lot of talent, but the question is, does he have that oomph to win? And in this case, the answer was yes, he did. For Matt, it was Kono. For me, it was R Silver Oak. Let's listen to the race call of what I thought was the best race 
on the card right now. And uh, Leroff, Kono was a little slow to go on the far outside. He's in midfield after that. Five-star Lynch, king of speed. Those two out alertly. Kono moving forward, was away last from the gate. He's striding up to be level with the top two. And Kono on the outside comes looking for the lead early. Kono a little bit aggressive and strides to the front, clears off and opens up two lengths. King of speed happy to let this leader get away here. He's in second. Another two lengths to five-star Lynch in third. A gap of another three to American Farmer. Limebird on the outside of him. More power to him is second to last, and our Silver Oak is trailing with three-quarters of a mile to go. It's Kono making play on the lead, a length and a half on top of King of Speed, a similar margin back to five-star Lynch running in third. Limebird on a hold in the clear today, running in fourth with American Farmer, and a length and a half to the last pair, our Silver Oak, and more power to him. They're down the backside. Kono maintains a nice, easy lead of a length and a half, slows things down in the second quarter mile, still leads by a length now. King of Speed a little bit closer. In second, five-star Lynch still in third, perched on the outside three deep. American Farmers down at the rail. Limebird, four lengths off the lead in midfield, hitting the far turn run. Our Silver Oak second to last, passing more power to him, the long shot, who drops back. Around the far turn, and Kono maintains the lead. It's just a neck now. King of Speed a lot closer. There goes Limebird on the far outside. He's caught three deep, moving up nicely now. American Farmer is being asked to pick up the pace. Our Silver Oak is in fifth as they swing off the turn, and King of Speed... Tries to put away Kono at the 3 16th has. American Farmers coming on gamely up the fence. And Kono's trying to fight back. Our Silver Oak far outside putting in a run as Limebird flattens out. American Farmer has the lead from King of Speed and our Silver Oak who's charging. American Farmer 10 to 1. Our Silver Oak trying to tag him late. Our Silver Oak on the outside. He got there. And the number one, our Silver Oak gets it done with paying $6 with an 84 buyer. Just improves the buyer point one point. Like you had said, he needed every ounce of power down the lane. Good call on the wire, by the way, too. I, I, I For me at first, I didn't know if it was going to be that close, and uh, it definitely was close. It was close, and I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to call it in the final 10 yards. I figured it was going to be really tight, but he got his head down there, and he's a big horse, so that's a good thing. He had a big head, too, so he got his head <laughs> down. That was the key, Spencer, Deer win, was making sure he got that head down first. The horse that ran second, American Farmer, what were your thoughts on the on the race for him? I thought he ran a great race. I thought his jockey, Frank Alvarado, gave him a great ride. Um, this horse has always had talent. I mean, he ran second in the El Camino Real Derby last year in 2020, first start against winners. And there was a time where this horse was doing really well last year. He won the Robert Dupree Derby on the turf for three-year-olds here at Golden Gate. So he's got some class. But his recent races were pretty average to subpar, including last time out. He was coming off a little bit of a break of uh, about two months. So just more of a freshening than anything else. But he sat off the pace and ran fourth behind King of Speed, R. Silver Oak, and Limebird, all who are entered back in this spot. So off recent form, I was a little concerned just not knowing if he was quite good enough to win the race. And he wasn't good enough to win the race this time, but he really showed a new lease of life there uh, to run the way he did because his form wasn't necessarily going in the right direction. He sort of popped up with a really good race again. So I thought it was a great effort from him, just second best, but um, really hard trying effort. And I'm excited to see what he's going to do further down the line as a four-year-old. Maybe that'll get his confidence back up a little bit. I think, too, it's crazy as much as it seems. The top four from that race came right back and ran a mix of top four in this race. And not being in that top three little line there you see in the form and running fourth, but just missing by two and a half lengths, and you're getting double the price compared to King of Speed. 
it's an angle I love is when you can go back through Formulator even and see, oh, this horse ran sixth in that race, but obviously it was a very difficult race. Now it takes a smaller drop in class, and maybe, you know, the winner of that race for some reason is dropping, but you like that horse as well. And when you like one horse and they're finishing pretty close together, I find it really hard when handicappers say, but I don't like the other horse. Unless if it's very specific, like it's a, uh, a closer in a race with no speed or a couple speed types when they're, you know, four or five that want to go to the lead. You have to give a better reason for not liking the horse because if he ran so well and you're getting 5x the price, I can't see why you can't play him here. And the thing about his last start is he ran a pretty even race when you look at it, and they went 24 and 350 flat, 114 and change for the fractional time. So they weren't really going fast at all. This horse doesn't have just this huge acceleration. He's got a kick, but it's not this wicked turn of foot you're going to see. He continues to just sort of come at you. That's his running style. Uh, whenever he runs well, he just keeps coming. He keeps coming. So you knew that this time around, at least the pace was going to be a little more to his liking. He's, he was going to get something to chase. And like you said, when you lose by two and a half lengths, you, you're not getting, you're not, you're not losing by a lot. I mean, you're just not quite good enough to get there that day, but if they can take a little step forward, realistically, all he needed to do was improve two lengths, mm-hmm. uh, Spencer. And he, and then, then if he's improving two lengths, there you go. He's right there at the wire, and that's what he did. And that's not really a huge question to ask, is it, to improve two lengths for a horse on a given day? I don't think it is, especially with uh, a pace scenario for a closer that you're likely going to get a better pace to chase. I think, too, just being lightly raced overall as a four-year-old is just something, too, where everyone thinks, you know, once they're not three, they can't improve leaps and bounds. You know, at four, they're still not five. You know, they can still have that little, you know, burst of improvement especially you know only having 12 starts exactly and he's got some uh he's got some career ahead of him let's put it that way he's got a career still to go here and he's got plenty of races left in him i'm sure i mean look at this just four starts ago he lost by three lengths in the del mar derby to pixelate i mean that's (laughs) that's a pretty good effort i would say to say the least that fits with this group i i think that horse will be another one kind of putting on the watch list along with foggy bottom that is mm-hmm. all the time that we have for today's podcast. So I want to thank my special guest, Matt Dinnerman, for taking time out of his busy schedule to come on. Where can people find you on social media, Matt? Well, you can follow me on Twitter, or at least go to it and uh, check things out. At 3 Colts Handicap is my Twitter, the number 3 Colts Handicap. And uh, it's pretty centralized around horse racing. We have a good time chatting and giving updates about Golden Gate Fields as well. And, uh, of course, participating in the Daily Gallup Contest, which has been a ton of fun. Thank you so much for coming. I hope to have you on again soon. All right, my friend. Thanks for having me so much. Appreciate it. Before I let you all go, let's hear from Barry Meadow on his stats with beaten favorites. And don't forget, you too can pick up the Skeptical Handicapper from Amazon or trpublishing.com. Some players follow beaten favorites. The theory... If a horse was regarded highly enough to go off as the favorite, and for some reason he didn't win, should you abandon him when he comes back in his next start, which is generally at better odds? Researcher Ken Massa checked more than 102,000 beaten favorites. The fact that such a horse was well bet last time didn't seem to mean much, no matter what elements we studied. We looked at numerous factors ranging from whether the horse was dropping in class to limiting play to trainers with greater than 20% wins to the beaten favorites finishing position last time out. It turned out that these beaten favorites simply ran to today's odds. If they went off at two to one, they ran like two to one shots. 
If they went off at 30 to 1, they ran like 30 to 1 shots. Generally, the win percentages and ROI improve marginally, but only marginally, by using the usual booster factors such as best last race, top early speed, and leading trainer, but nowhere close to profitability. Overall, the ROI wasn't much different no matter what we looked at. We also analyzed horses who had been beaten favorites twice in a row. These won 25%, but returned just 80 cents for each dollar bet. I'm Barry Meadow, author of The Skeptical Handicapper, using data and brains to win at the racetrack. Thank you so much, Barry, for that. And thank you for all the listeners and my special guest, Matt Dinnerman. This show has been a production of In The Money Media. In The Money Media's president is Pierre Thomas Fornatel. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. And our In The Money Media business manager is Drew Coatney. I'm Spencer Luganbule, and we will see you next time. Nowhere to hide from our love this past.